My brothers and sisters, this is a very special time of the year, of course, and I'm very gratified to see so many people doing the, the full journey. People uh, at, in Clyde for the Good Friday service in Clyde were, were, you know, we had a good number, and the faces here today and the faces there are the same faces I'm seeing at Holy Thursday. And I anticipate and I encourage to try to have you guys also come to the Easter Vigil as well. So it's really nice to see everybody. We're, we're kind of making this journey together. And uh, they're long liturgies. They're very involved. And they're physically taxing. There's no doubt about it. Um, but there's something more than the body involved with these liturgies. It's very much an opportunity for our minds and for our hearts and our spirits to come into contact with the Lord in, in a special way. I'm going to introduce to you today a kind of um, some some categories here that you're probably you, you might not be very familiar with, okay? Because we live in a particular era and a particular culture that has forgotten these sorts of categories. But what I'm referring to is the difference between the active life and the contemplative life. Okay, so the active life and the contemplative life in the ancient world, even before Christianity, within Judaism especially, but even amongst pagans. There was the idea that, for the most part, people are going to choose a life that is productive in the immediate here and now. They're going to engage in the political and the social realm, and they're going to produce things, uh, material objects that are going to be useful for the community. And that's how they're going to live their life. Most of their energy and their time is going to be dedicated to that. That's the active life. But there was always a percentage of people, much, much, much higher percentage of people than today, who would choose what's called the contemplative life. And uh, this is a life that's dedicated not necessarily to something, to things that are pragmatic, to things that are productive of material prosperity. Rather, it's a life that focuses on truth and the contemplation of the truth, consideration and the development and the acquisition of the truth. It's a material and a spiritual value. And so these people, they wouldn't produce or um, gather to themselves or contribute to the material realities and the material well-being of culture, but to the spiritual riches and heritage of culture. And they would build this up. And art oftentimes is, is a close companion to this idea of the contemplative life. So truth and beauty... Okay, So the active life focuses on doing good for others. The contemplative life focuses on the acquisition of and the contemplation of truth and beauty. And uh, within Judaism, for example, you know, we think of the monastic life as something that's, you know, maybe what Christians do. But believe it or not, in the ancient Jewish world, there were monastic communities. So even in the days of our Lord, when he, you know, in the first century... There were whole communities of Jews in the, in the, in the Palestinian deserts and in Egypt and in other places and they would, they would congregate together and they would live very, very simply, very austerely really we should say, and they would dedicate their whole time to prayer, to liturgy, to reading, to study, and to the, to the contemplation of truth. Okay, this was done. And again, this, there's communities like that amongst pagan groups as well. Pythagoreans and different followers, different philosophical groups and things would engage in this kind of lifestyle. When Christianity came about, there was a very nice fusion and balance, a marriage of the active life and the contemplative life. And it's really part of our Catholic Christian heritage 
to say that we need a balance between these two things. Okay, you can't focus on one over the other. Um, but if there's going to be one that has, even though they're both essential to a full, well-rounded human existence, even though they're both ex- uh, um, essential, one actually has superiority to the other one. And that's actually the contemplative life. It's actually the contemplative life. Now, in the modern world, in the past 500 years, the whole idea of the contemplative life has almost completely disappeared. Okay? And it's very interesting, too, because, for example, even within the church, religious life in America, America, we're a very pragmatic people. Okay, so the, the first people from Europe that were here were Puritans, and they didn't have this idea of the contemplative life. They thought that was nonsense. Okay? They were just all about pragmatic productivity, work, get something done. Forget about this contemplative crap. Okay, that was their kind of mindset. And that's the Puritan work ethic that has very much affected America. And so we're big into politics and into law and into making money. And it's done, it served us very well. We're the most prosperous country in the world. But the whole idea of contemplation has gone by the wayside. And it's continuing to go by the wayside as the level of intelligence of our public discourse continues to plummet, continues to go down and down and down. And all we can do at this point is start to shout slogans at each other. You know, um, this is um, this is a real tragedy. It's even seen in religious life. So, for example, if you go to Europe, you still have some groups that are purely contemplative. In America, eh, not so much. Religious orders have to justify their existence by being very much productive and contributive to the social sphere. Otherwise, hey, what's their purpose? Okay? So that's the kind of modern pragmatic mindset that's focused in an, in an imbalanced way on the active life. Whenever there have been great revolutions in the past few hundred years, I'm thinking particularly of the French Revolution, the first things that they do, this happened actually as well, going back to uh, King Henry VIII when he broke away from the church. One of the first things that he did is he suppressed all the monasteries because they were useless. Okay, that's, that's the mindset. Okay, And then also in the French Revolution, what do those monks do? Ha! Huh, my gosh, they're useless. They don't do it. They don't produce. They're not productive. They just do liturgy. All the time. What good does that do anybody? Shut them down. So that was the mindset in all these revolutions. The first things that would get suppressed would be the contemplative religious orders. My brothers and sisters, this is a very unhealthy and terrible thing. If we see in our gospel today, Jesus says... I have come to testify to the truth. That's his very reason for being born. The truth. The truth. We cannot know what is good and how to live unless we first know the truth. And that requires reflection and quiet contemplation and consideration of the truth. You see, we noticed, and I mentioned this past um, Palm Sunday, how when Jesus was asked a question, they said, are you the Messiah? He's kind of evasive. You know, in, in the first three Gospels, he says things like, that's what you say. Okay? And even today, Pilate addresses him, so you're the king of the Jews? And he says, you say so. 
He's evasive because when his audience asked him whether or not he was the king or whether he was the Messiah, what they had in mind was a purely this-worldly, social, political, community organizer. That's what they had in mind. That's what their idea of the Messiah was. And that's not what Jesus was about. He came first and foremost, yes, to influence society, but first and foremost by teaching the truth so that individuals would adhere to the truth. And then maybe those individuals who live according to the truth can influence society in a positive fashion. Okay, so be it. But ultimately, that is not what Jesus came for. Okay, He says, those who are of the truth, they hear my voice and they follow me. Now, in contrast to Jesus' emphasis on the contemplation the and the adherence to truth at all costs, even the cost of our life, we have someone like Pilate. In years past in homilies, I've talked about how Pilate uh, had a bad sense of boundaries and a bad sense of responsibility, and his main fault was abdicating a responsibility that really was his, and the washing of the hand did him no good. Okay, it was still his responsibility that Christ was crucified. But in, But today what I'll focus on is the fact that Jesus was betrayed by a man who was a pragmatist and could care less about the truth. He was cynical. He was skeptical. Jesus says, I am of the truth. And Pilate says, Puh, what is the truth? Okay? Pilate just knew blood and force and politics. That's what he knew. And that's, that's what he responded to. That's how he operated. Jesus was much came and existed and spoke and operated on a plane a lot higher than that, the plane of truth. You know, we look in our tradition, look at Notre Dame Cathedral, of course, who had this, this terrible tragedy. I think a lot of people, really, I think a lot of people would say, huh, so what? It got burnt. I mean, it's just a big building. What's it doing there? doesn't really do anything. Okay? And then when it is appreciated, oftentimes it's appreciated by the larger secular world because they say, well, it brings a lot of tourists there and they make some pretty good money for France. You know what I mean? Okay. But look at something like the Notre Dame Cathedral. It took hundreds and hundreds of years for people to build that. And it wasn't for a pragmatic end. It was for a transcendent end. It was for beauty. It was for God's glory. Okay? So this is our Catholic heritage, and we have to understand that. And cathedrals are wonderful testimonies, as are stained glass windows, as are the liturgies that we celebrate. These, This whole week in the world, in the secular mindset, is completely useless. What What are we doing? Spending all of this time doing all these elaborate ceremonies. It's useless, right, from the pragmatic point of view. But from the point of view of the contemplative life, this is the most important thing we can be doing. We're taking time, and we're giving it to the contemplation of beauty and truth as we listen to the scriptures, as we contemplate all of the elaborate ceremonies of the liturgy, which all have meaning, which all have meaning, and point to the truth. And testify to the truth like Jesus came to testify to the truth. 
I'm reading, I'm listening to an audiobook. I don't, unfortunately, I'm so busy talking about the active contemplative life. I don't have much time really for the contemplative life as a, as a busy pastor. So what I do to try to get a little bit of intellectual stimulation in my life is I listen to audiobooks as I'm brushing my teeth and as I drive in the car. Latest audiobook I'm listening to, it's riveting. And it's an incredibly well-written biography of, and you probably, all of us here know, Jim Jones, the cult leader, Jim Jones, okay? Back in the 60s and the 70s, and he did his, he came to his, you know, climactic conclusion there in the late 70s, I believe. Now, it's very interesting because you look at this man's psychology as he was growing up. It follows his dysfunctional relationship with his father and all these different, his religious life when he was a child. And uh, I think there was a measure of goodness in him. And he was very much interested in doing good for others. And he was very much interested in treating everybody equally. That was a kind of like there was a kernel of goodness in him at first. But it became corrupted. When he was a child, he was brought... He was kind of um, adopted and brought to a, a, a religious service in a particular religious tradition by this one woman, and she wanted to make him a convert of this particular sect, you know. And he enjoyed it. He really liked church at this church, you know, it was the Nazarene church. But then afterwards, he'd go to the Baptist church, and then he'd go to the Methodist church, and then he'd go to this church and then that church. And what was the common theme and the thread throughout it all was that he didn't care which one was true. Okay, he was about social activism, not truth. And by the time he was 18 or 19, he was all about equal rights, fighting for for change in society, making the world a better place, and he could care less about whether or not this religion is true or that religion is true. You see? Okay, sounds sounds good, but look, you got to have the truth first before you're able to go out and do good. Otherwise, you might start going down the wrong path. And that's precisely what happens with Jim Jones. And at some point, he only becomes a preacher because he starts to realize, whoa, the Methodists are interested in the same thing I'm interested in, that is social activism. So he becomes, he starts associating with the Methodists. But the thing is, they tie him down a little bit. So he begins, maybe he's thinking about becoming a Quaker. Then he's thinking about becoming a disciple of Christ. You see... Doctrine and truth questions, they don't matter. What matters is making the world a better place. It's all about activism. It's about the political and social structure of the world here and now. Transcendent truth and beauty, ah, who cares about that? And in fact, there's a story, it's very interesting, because at some point they kind of took this one young woman into their house, and she was a kind of a Christian, she was from a more traditional Christian family, and she wanted to say grace before meals. And they said, okay, that's fine. And she started to realize from that point on that they didn't have any problem with grace before meals, but the reality of it was that they never prayed, and that Jim Jones had absolutely zero prayer life on his own. Now, if he stood before a congregation of people, could that guy pray? You better believe it. He could just compose these wonderful prayers. He sounded very religious. Okay? Did he pray on his own? No, not at all. Okay? And at some point, he starts to dabble with this idea of reincarnation. He starts to think that he's God, that he is Jesus in the flesh. Okay? All of these kinds of strange beliefs. And his people stick to him because of his social activism. 
Not they start to think to themselves, this guy's getting a little kooky, but he's doing so much good in the earth, in the world. We're going to continue to follow him. You see, this is the problem when you prioritize the active over the contemplative life. So my brothers and sisters, in a world that has completely forgotten the contemplative, let's carve out a space to do a little pushback this week as we're doing, as we did last night, Holy Thursday, as we do now with Good Friday, and as we will do at the vigil and on Easter Sunday. Our liturgy is a way of reclaiming a love for contemplation of beauty, of the truth. And the value of what we're doing here is transcendent. Because we are harnessing and bringing down invisible graces for the salvation of souls and for the good of the world. We're not producing anything material. We're not being pragmatic. But we're doing good because we are engaged in prayer. And we are engaged in the contemplation of truth, which is transformative, which will make us new, make us over in the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so that like him we can go out into the world and testify to the truth.